Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer. Blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, your new favorite part of the day. Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York. Today on Not Sam Wrestling, the Scottish warrior Drew McIntyre is with us. We got to talk about the future of Roman Reigns and Daniel Bryan and the story of Triple H as told through his own music. This is Not Sam Wrestling. is not Sam Wrestling. Introducing your host from New York, here is Sam Roberts. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show, everybody. Welcome to Not Sam Wrestling. I am Sam Roberts. This is my show. I would hope by now you know that. We've got a great show planned. Drew McIntyre is going to be on the show. But before we get to Drew McIntyre, of course, he's going to be talking about his book and being champion for the last year and and the drama that went into WrestleMania this year and everything. But before we get there, we have a lot to discuss. I mean, first of all, and this is something that uh, I'm not going to get into here because I don't want to be repetitive, but we talked a whole bunch. There's some really fascinating stuff going into the weekend. The rumors of uh, MLW that's coming to Vice TV and WWE potentially working together. Uh, We talked about that and the golden era that we're in for wrestling documentaries on the Patreon-exclusive podcast this week, Thursday, Not Sam Thursday. So if you want to get caught up, patreon.com slash wrestling. Less than a dollar a week to be a member, and every tier gets access to the exclusive Thursday show. Because it really is. I mean, last night, the Macho Man documentary, the Roddy Piper documentary, the Stone Cold documentary, Dark Side of the Ring coming back for a third season with, like, 13 or 14 episodes in it. You guys, everything the network and Peacock is pumping out right now. Two dudes with attitudes coming on. I think we got a, uh, uh, Damien, uh, Damien Priest. I almost call him Damien Archer again. Documentary coming out next week. There's just so much wrestling information out there. It's a beautiful thing. I love wrestling information. That's what got me to thinking. This was, a. Well, I guess it's a shower thought, because where else are you going to have thoughts uh, about Triple H but in the shower? That's not weird, I don't think. But I'm sitting there, right? And I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking, Triple H is my time. First of all, and I tweeted about this, and the reason I'm talking about it today is because it got way more feedback than I realized it would. It got so much feedback, so many people talking about this premise. So I was like, My Time, probably the most underrated theme song of all time. The fact that it's not even in discussions that people have about the greatest wrestling theme song of all time is, I mean, it's it's outrageous. It is such a a meta song. It is, I mean, Kevin Dunn's name. Kevin Dunn doesn't even get mentioned on television. And hey, Dunn, keep your finger off the switch. It's in the song. It's in the lyrics of the song. The Monster Suits, McMahon, the short one, the mellow one, the easy one. Like, it's so, it's very bibliographic. Bibliographic? Biographic. If it was bibliographic, it would just be mentioning all the books the Triple H had read, I guess. It's not bibliographic, but it's biographic of the character at that stage in his career. And then I realized, whoa, 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 whoa. Because I was like, okay, what comes after my time? 
And I didn't even realize there was like an instrumental because then I was like, the game comes after that. And I was like, wait, if you really break down the game, that's also breaking down the character. Because wrestling theme music, when you hit on something, you usually don't change your theme, right? Like if you follow the trajectory of Shawn Michaels, the character arc of Shawn Michaels strictly through his theme music, you get this guy that like, okay, he was super into like 80s rock with the Rockers theme music. And then I guess he met Sensational Sherry and uh, I guess he was her boy toy, but not your boy toy, uh, her sexy boy, because she's singing the song. And then you're like, oh, I guess he split from Sherry because he's just singing about himself as a sexy boy. And then that's the end of his story. It goes from Rockers to I left the Rockers and now I'm with Sherry to I left Sherry. And that's the end. Chris Jericho, it's like he shows up in 1999, ready to break the walls down, and he spends the next 20 years breaking the walls down. The Undertaker, this guy loves funerals, also loves Limp Biscuit and Kid Rock, and then also goes back to loving funerals. So there is something there, but The Undertaker's theme trajectory is very, very broad strokes. Triple H's entire character arc, more so than literally any other character in history, can be told simply by listening to his themes. I have on my list here, and I started going through after I really developed this theory. It is so true. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I have like nine, maybe 10 different themes that Triple H has used. There is no other character like Kane had basically one song and then they added some lyrics because the fire burns and then it went back or like they make little tweaks or they remix it a little bit. But very rarely, you could literally, and I might do this, create a Broadway musical depicting the story of the career of the Triple H character only using the music that Triple H came to the ring with. We start in 1995, Hunter Hearst Helmsley. This is also the beginning of the character arc. Yes, uh, uh, Paul Levesque wrestled before he was Hunter Hearst Helmsley as Jean-Paul Levesque, Levesque and Terra Ryzen. But those two characters, first of all, Jean-Paul Levesque, I don't even think was Terra Ryzen. So those two characters are independent of each other, and they're certainly independent of the Hunter Hearst Helmsley character. Hunter Hearst Helmsley didn't show up going like, you might know me as Jean-Paul Levesque. No. He didn't have to put on the French accent anymore. He was Hunter Hearst Helmsley, the Greenwich Blue Blood. That is the beginning of the story of Triple H. And it's that very, you know, it's like almost like something out of a, a cartoon almost. It's very of the time to WWE. It it absolutely adds very much. It's very gimmicky. It's very gimmicky. It's over the top. It's living, breathing cartoon character. That's where WWE was at the time. That's where Hunter Hearst Helmsley was at the time. He tied his hair back with a ribbon. He wore a riding jacket to the ring. He bowed. He curtsied before everybody. I mean, it was it was hit the nail on the head Greenwich Blue Blood character, right? Something out of a storybook. 
And you can completely hear that, that entire character in the theme song. You just listen to the theme song, and that's the character that comes to mind. You don't even need lyrics for it. In 97, the Triple H character begins the evolution. This is before DX. Before DX, Triple H starts coming out to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And I mean, Beethoven's Ninth Sympathy is a far more serious and far more aggressive song. You know, this is something that depending on the context of it, I mean, they use Beethoven in A Clockwork Orange super effectively because, you know, you can't just say, well, it's some random classical music. No, it's important to really listen to it. And as you hear Beethoven's Ninth Sympathy, sym sympathy Symphony, it's like, it could be, it's like war music, okay? This is a, this is still very sophisticated. This is still theoretically, I think I'm better than you, but this is not a cartoon character. This is serious, and most importantly, this is more aggressive. This is like the era when Triple H finally won the King of the Ring. This is when, as that first, he had a King of the Ring match with uh, uh, Mankind, I want to say. Yeah, yeah. And it was like that. It, it was the beginning of the far more aggressive side of Triple H. It was when Hunter Hearst Helmsley started to kind of morph into Triple H. I mean, keep in mind, when Triple H was in DX, when DX started and it was Triple H and Shawn Michaels, it wasn't full on Triple H jeans and DX t-shirt. It was still elements of Hunter Hearst Helmsley in that character. His robe was green, but he still came to the ring in a crushed velvet robe. He would still, he didn't have a ribbon in his hair anymore, but he had the braid pull, holding his hair back. Which, by the way, the braid holding his hair back, he didn't have a ribbon in his hair anymore with the Beethoven's Ninth either. So Beethoven's Ninth Sympathy, when you when you hear it, you're going like, I could see how the guy who, who had the Blue Blood theme music, I can see how he would evolve into this, but clearly he's evolved into something else. Clearly he's a much more serious, aggressive version of, of that character, which is exactly what that Triple H character was. Now, I'm not going to categorize him using the music of every faction that he was in. I don't think that that's true to the character, but definitely DX's music. Because this is also, let's keep in mind, I mean, the DX's music became his as he became the leader of DX and the DX army. But think about the lyrics of that song. First of all, like, you know, it's a very of the time 90s sound it's almost a uh rage against the machine type of 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 sound to the music and this is where the lyrics kick in you think you could tell me what to do you think you could tell me what to wear you think that you're better well you better get ready to bow to the masters suck it degenerate into something cool this is what happened this character degenerates into something cool. And we're witnessing this. Like, think about In Your House DX, right? He's still with Shawn Michaels. And he has that match with, with Sergeant Slaughter, right? And this is still Hunter Hearst Helmsley. He's still got the robe and everything. China's with him. However, like, the 96 Blue Blood music, that's Triple H with, like, Sable and the various women that he'd come out with. The 97 Triple H with Beethoven Symphony Number no. 9, that's China Triple H. 
That's when China starts accompanying him. And you know that that character took a huge leap at that point. And then now you've got DX, who, while he's not fully saying, this is a character, this is not really me. He is saying, I'm not going to pretend to be something that I'm not anymore. Bow to the masters. Break it down. He's degenerating from this character. When he's wrestling Sergeant Slaughter, there, I think that's probably the end of, yeah, that would be the end of 97. Yes, he's still Triple H, but he's also making references to uh, Sergeant Slaughter's wife. He's making sexual innuendo. He's wearing an apron that says, suck the cook. <laughs> and he's degenerating. And once he becomes the full-on leader of the DX army, he is fully degenerated into something cool. And that is the DX version of Triple H. Now, this is what people brought up. There's, there's a Triple H theme that people don't think about. You know, they think it goes straight from DX into my time. And that's not true. See, when he left DX in 99, he used this theme that was just called corporate player. And if you listen to it, it is a very uh, nondescript, miscellaneous, royalty-free sounding, quote-unquote, heel wrestler music instrumental. There's nothing that is character-defining about that song. But to me, that's important. To me, that tells you who he was in that moment, because this is before he necessarily did the promo with JR that I think changed his career. This is before he's really embraced being the game. This is when he's just turned on DX and he's become a corporate player, but he's not the guy, you know? Think about the corporate ministry. Because he did, and that's where, like, he used the no chance when he was in the corporation and the corporate ministry song when he was in the corporate ministry, but those weren't really his songs. That was just part of the bigger group. But that's the point, that he had, was no longer in DX and now he was part of these factions that weren't his factions. He's just a member of them now. He's no longer this leader. He's no longer this central character. It's like the corporate ministry, Undertaker, Vince McMahon, Shane McMahon even. You've got to go down several levels before you even get to Triple H. Triple H at that point is trying to figure out who this non-DX version of Triple H is. The last time we saw Triple H not in D-Generation X, he was Beethoven's ninth Hunter Hearst Helmsley, and he's not that guy anymore. So who is he? I don't know yet. I know he's a heel, and I know he's a wrestler, and I know he's getting ready to ascend to this main event bad guy place. But I don't know who he is yet. And that's where corporate player comes into play. He's figuring it out. He's not there yet. Now, he moves on from corporate player and before my time becomes his music, he does use an instrumental that sounds an awful lot like my time. I'm not going to spend too long on that. You know, that now, now we're really picking hairs. I don't even know if he would consider that one of his songs. I think you have to include the corporate player song in here because it is a completely unique song that he absolutely did use. The My Time instrumental, it was kind of a holdover before My Time started, but it did sound unique. Like, it, that's where you're starting to... That's where you really start... That It starts to feel like, okay, this is a... 
an ag aggressive sort of like off the beaten path. This is a guy who's not, who's got a chip on his shoulder. This is a guy who's not interested in fitting in anymore. This is a guy who doesn't want a wrestling song that sounds like other wrestling songs. And that's where my time kicks in. My time is so meta and so literal that I, I, in, in the best possible way, keep the keep your finger off the switch. You know, you don't know what trouble is. Your games, your politics. Well, it's my time. All you fools and your stupid rules. He's sitting here and he's acknowledging everything that happened after the farewell to the click. This was 2000. So he's sitting here and he's going, I did everything. You give us the shout, we'll give you nothing. I did everything you guys wanted. I maintain DX. You lost the biggest star in the company. That was the focal point of a huge moneymaker in D-Generation X. And not only did I maintain it, I would say I made it better. I did everything that you guys wanted. And still, Austin, Rock, Undertaker, I'm not one of these guys. Well, it's my time now. It's my time now. And you're sitting there going like, yeah, like you can start, you can, you can just see it. You can see where all these songs have built to at this time. And then he goes back uh, to using an instrumental, which is great to me. I, I love that he used an instrumental for my time after my time, because now that period of his career is like, we're acknowledging. Yeah. Like you got here, you know, that's like, that's like, uh, that's, that's later in 2000, I guess. But at that point, you're saying, yeah, I mean, we don't have to announce that it's your time anymore because you're not breaking through. You broke through. You were effective. You got here. And that's when everything changes. Boom, boom. It's time to play the game. And Lemmy comes on. And the song is just so good. And, and, and it's cerebral. And it sticks with you. And it's just a good song outside of wrestling. But then you listen to the lyrics. It's all about the game and how you play it. It's all about control and if you can take it. This is now Triple H again. We're going meta. We're, we're, we're tipping our hat to everything that everybody's complaining about on the internet. In my time, he's calling out the politics. In my time, he's calling out the fact that there's all these political games going on and there's people trying to hold him back. Well, now in the game... He's saying that he not only has he gotten there, not only has he gotten to the point that it's his time, but he's figured out the politics. Now he's played it and he's taken control all the way. And you're sitting there going like, are we talking about the character? Or are we talking about the guy who behind the scenes is rising up in power inside the WWE? And how did that happen? And how did he figure all this out? Well, this is the true cerebral assassin. This is the game. This is somebody who's not sitting there going like, hey, I've done everything you've ever wanted. This is the guy saying now, now we're at a point in this career where you have to meet me at my level. I'm the standard bearer now. You see? It's a completely different phase in his career. And it's all explained within Lenny's words and the feeling that you get when it... <laughs> That's why he still uses it to this day. Of course, uh, 2003, 
I believe the song is called Line in the Sand. But that's Evolution's song. Evolution is a mystery. See, he's he's the game has now evolved even past being just the game. In Evolution, he's talking about not only the evolution of Triple H, but the evolution of the whole business and how now he's gotten to this place where he's going to be able to craft the business around his vision. Now it's not just about Triple H reaching the heights that Triple H wants to reach. It's about Triple H putting all the people in place that need to be in place. That song explains who Triple H is in that period of time, where he's using the influence of the nature boy Ric Flair, where he's positioning Randy Orton to be powerful, but not too powerful. Powerful enough that it will benefit Triple H and he'll be a good soldier, but not too powerful. And he's positioning Batista, where he'll be powerful, but not too powerful. Powerful enough to benefit Triple H, but never more powerful than Triple H. He's now using superstars, the up-and-comers, and even the legends, like Ric Flair as his pawns. Evolution, line in the sand, while yes, this is the faction theme of the whole group, when you really listen to it, I believe the story that's being told here, because ultimately when you look at that faction and you look at who Triple H was in that period of time, that's when he is fully turned. He's no longer like, I mean, that's when he started feathering his hair. That's when he started wearing the Nature Boy suits. That's when he, started, he shaved all the facial hair and he was just shameless about the fact that he the industry was his now. Whether you like it or not, the industry was his. That's when he started leaning in to all the people on the internet that didn't like him anymore. Okay. Now you, I, I will show you, I will give you everything that you don't like about me. If you're not going to like me, you're going to see why. And that's all explained in the song. And then it's another 10 years, I believe, somewhere around there, it's 2012, 2013, when the final Triple H song comes out. And that's when you know that this has all been effective, that, that, that the blue blood became the aggressive, serious competitor that he needed to be. He then decided that everybody's going to have to bow down to the masters. You're not going to tell me what to do. You're not going to tell me what to wear. And you could suck it. Then he realized that he had to be out on his own, but he wasn't exactly sure who he was until he had just decided that he had played all the games. It wasn't about impressing the right people anymore. Now it was time to take it. Now it was time to take his spot as the number one guy in WWE because it was his time. And then he achieved that. And he walked around and he owned it. Once he had achieved it, he owned it and he held on to it. And then he realized that he had achieved a certain amount of power that the system became his, that he became the standard bearer, that, that it wasn't up to him to fight against the politics anymore. He was the politics. It wasn't about fighting against the control. It was about taking the control, and he had taken it because he is the game now. This, this impossible thing to reach, he was the thing that was the impossible thing to reach. That's, that's, that's his role now. 
And he became a person that evolved into somebody that was manipulating the entire industry to work in his favor, that was using legends, that was using young up-and-comers to all be in his favor. And it all worked. And the industry belonged to him. And he had all the power. And once he had all the power, the announcement was made. Behold, the king of kings. Bow down to the, bow down to the king. And there you have it. With the king of kings, the musical journey is the same character arc that the Triple H character went through in the WWE. There is no other competitor that has that. There is no other superstar that has anything like that. If, if, if you can think of any, hashtag not Sam wrestling, tweet me at not Sam. Tell me that I'm forgetting somebody because there is no other character. Roman Reigns, he finally got a new song. It's only his second song. And he's gone through many, many phases. Triple H is a, is, a, is, a, is a Broadway musical. And that's next. WWE, you give me the rights to these songs, I'll come back to you with a stage show the likes of which you have never seen before. Broadway's coming back. New York is opening back up. You thought WWE The World was a hot spot in Times Square? Wait till Triple H The Musical debuts on Broadway. Then you're really gonna know. I'm the game. Speaking of the game, before we get to today's interview, we got to talk about uh, what happened on SmackDown. Pat McAfee on the call, Michael Cole on the call. Uh, career versus title. Well, career versus title, but specifically career on SmackDown versus title. They made that very clear. Daniel Bryan is a putting up the ability to work on SmackDown against Roman Reigns' WWE Championship. I think that SmackDown remains the number one wrestling show for micro storytelling on TV. As I've said till I was been blue in the face here on the podcast, I think that, that wrestling, when it's at its best, has micro stories that are told per episode, meaning each episode of TV has a micro through line. Those micro stories add up to one macro story, which is going, adding up this micro stories on the TV to go from pay-per-view to pay-per-view, and then an even bigger macro story that spans multiple pay-per-views through multiple TVs and blah, blah, blah. No other show in wrestling, Raw, NXT, AEW, nobody else is doing episodic, singular episode storytelling like SmackDown is. Every week, they've got something that they set up towards the beginning of the show, there's an act two towards the middle of the show, and then they end with act three. And it's it's great. That's It's storytelling. It's what keeps people engaged throughout the program. And I thought they did such a good job this week of building up this title match throughout the show with video clips, with the predictions that were coming in, with the fact that they were talking about it, with the fact that they were hyping up, how rare it is that the championship uh, would be defended like this, and how they were making it seem like, look, Daniel Bryan could win this. This isn't something that happens every day. This isn't like, you know, the Attitude Era where the championship was defended on every show and titles were being exchanged like candy. No. Can you picture SmackDown without Daniel Bryan? I don't think so, which means Daniel Bryan could win the title tonight. He's won the title before. Wouldn't be the craziest thing that's ever happened. 
But Roman comes in and uh, chokes out Daniel Bryan. Roman gets the win over Daniel Bryan clean as a, as a whistle. Anybody that's been complaining that, which I have not, you know, I think Roman cheating and getting help to win matches adds to the character that Roman Reigns has right now. But I know there are some, and there have been some in our Patreon Discord room that haven't enjoyed that the finishes haven't been clean. Well, you got a clean-ass finish on SmackDown. Daniel Bryan is not on SmackDown anymore. He's lost. I mean, the thing about Cesaro is it's going to be a great uh, match. Like, I'm looking forward to the fact that we're probably going to have a pay-per-view. I would imagine it'll be WrestleMania Backlash headlined by Roman Reigns versus Cesaro. But... I, I just, I have a hard time believing that with the run that Roman Reigns has been on, we see him beat Kevin Owens a bunch of times, then he beats Daniel Bryan, then he piles Edge and Daniel Bryan on top of each other to beat them, then he beats Daniel Bryan to the point that he can't wrestle on SmackDown anymore. I don't believe today that Cesaro is the guy that can end this dominant spree. Now, all that said, I'm so interested in the match because I never believed that Jey Uso could beat Roman Reigns, but I was always excited to see where the story was going. So I don't think that they shouldn't have the match. I just feel bad for Cesaro that he finally gets a chance in the main event, and it's a main event where we're like, he ain't beating Roman Reigns. As far as I was concerned, man, watching that show, I feel more strongly than ever. I think that... I think we should have... You know, obviously Roman beats Cesaro. SummerSlam... Strikes me as when we're back at arenas. I think we do Roman versus Brock at SummerSlam. Paul Heyman decides to go with Brock Lesnar. And I don't even think you turn Roman babyface. I think Paul Heyman and Brock Lesnar are babyface. Because I think Roman can exist without Paul Heyman. I think Paul Heyman adds to it, especially in the beginning. But now, I don't think Paul Heyman is essential. I think he's great. I think he's incredible, but I think it could be really interesting if Paul leaves Roman, joins Brock Lesnar, and then Roman beats Brock Lesnar at SummerSlam. Or you could have, probably what I would do is have Paul stay with Roman, Roman versus Brock at SummerSlam. Maybe Paul does something to interfere at SummerSlam on behalf of Brock Lesnar, except it doesn't work, and Roman catches him, and then he beats Brock Lesnar. Like, I think that that would be a good parting of the ways for Roman Reigns and Paul Heyman, and Roman beats Brock at SummerSlam. And then I would have Roman versus The Rock at WrestleMania. And, you know, who the who's the head of the table? And honestly, that, then I would have Roman beat The Rock. Within a year. I say WrestleMania 37, Roman stacks Edge and Daniel Bryan on top of each other and beats him. Two weeks later, he ends Daniel Bryan's career on SmackDown. What is that? April, May, June, July. Four months later, he beats Brock Lesnar clean in the ring. A year removed from this WrestleMania, he goes still universal champion. And he beats... The Rock. And then, I mean, I, I don't know. Then you're like, where do you go? Like, at this point, 
I want Roman to be the champion forever. Like, just keep stacking up people in front of him. Like, at some point, you're going to have to do something, sure. But keep Roman champion and try to build somebody underneath him. Just start building baby faces. Just build, build, build. Until you finally strike gold with somebody. Because what you've got in Roman Reigns now, and I would never turn him babyface. Maybe after he loses, you could turn him babyface. But what you've got in Roman Reigns now is what you wanted to have if Roman had beaten the streak. If Roman had beaten the streak, like if, if, if the Undertaker had beaten Brock Lesnar at WrestleMania 30 and the streak was intact, and then he went to WrestleMania 34, because that's where Roman beat the Undertaker. Let's see, right? 31 was Taker beating Bray. 32 was Taker beating Shane. So maybe it was 33. 33 is when Roman beat Taker. And the idea is that had Roman beaten the streak at 33, it would have been an even bigger deal. And I would say that that's not true, especially because the match wasn't great and because people didn't like Roman Reigns. I think people would have resented Roman Reigns even more coming off of WrestleMania 33 had he beaten the streak. I still say that Brock beating the streak, if you're going to have anybody beating the streak, I don't think you, and, and nobody would have benefited more from beating the streak than Brock Lesnar. You could say that Brock didn't need it, but that's not true. Brock was not this powerhouse just destroying everybody in his path before he beat The Undertaker. Brock was, you know, 50-50. John Cena had beaten Brock. Hunter had beaten Brock. Like, he was 50-50 at best. Once Brock beat The Undertaker, that's when he bounced back, and that's when he destroyed John Cena at that SummerSlam. That's when it was like, oh, okay. This is a different Brock Lesnar. This is the type of Brock Lesnar that can make people. Drew McIntyre got made, unfortunately not at WrestleMania, but I do think he got made at the Royal Rumble when he eliminated Brock. And I think that you can put Roman Reigns on another stratosphere by having him beat Brock Lesnar. And then you go to WrestleMania next year and you have him beat The Rock. Now you've got a guy and if you let the next year run with Roman as champion, then you spend that entire year building up some new baby faces, a couple of them, and see what sticks. Because after Roman Reigns beats The Rock, you're going to be left with a career maker. You're going to be left with a guy who will be able to make the next star when you find the person who truly should be the next star. And that's why you have to be so deliberate. That's why you have to be so delicate. I think, you know, at some point it would be great if you could get John Cena to come back, have Roman Reigns beat John Cena, have Roman Reigns beat everybody, put Drew McIntyre in front of him. Roman beats Drew, Roman beats Cena, Roman beats Brock, Roman beats The Rock, Roman beats everybody. Until you finally get to this point where you have built a real new star. And who knows who that could be? Who knows? Maybe it'll be Karrion Cross. Maybe it'll be Adam Cole. Maybe it'll be Tucker. Who knows? Well, it won't be Tucker. Maybe it'll be Otis, though. Who knows who it'll be? Maybe someone we don't even know yet. Maybe it'll be Parker Bordeaux, who just signed on with the Performance Center. I don't know. Maybe it'll be Matt Riddle. What if it's Matt Riddle? Build Matt Riddle for the next year? 
Keep him away from the championship? Oh, God. You build Matt Riddle for the next year? You keep him away from the championship? And after Roman beats The Rock, you draft Riddle over to SmackDown and you finally he finally gets to face the champion? And it's Riddle versus Roman Reigns and Roman Reigns is sitting there going, I've, I've beaten everybody. I ended Daniel Bryan. I beat Edge. I beat Cena. I beat Brock. I beat Rock. What are you going to do, Riddle? Bro, I'm going to win the title. And then Riddle wins the championship? You've got a star. you got a star. But in the meantime, here's going to be the beauty of it. It's going to be so much fun watching Roman Reigns beat everybody. So that's where you got Roman. Daniel Bryan, on the other hand, the question is, where is he going? He's been doing interviews, talking about the fact that he wants to work in other promotions. I don't think that's a bad idea at all. I, I think that that would be a great idea. I don't. I think he can't be on TV, but he could be on Fight Network, or the Fight TV. He could be on pay-per-views and stuff like that. You know, I think Daniel Bryan should show up at the next Blood Sport. I think Daniel Bryan should be at Joey Janela's Spring Break. You know, do some GCW stuff. Daniel Bryan in a Ring of Honor ring, I think would be a good thing. Daniel Bryan in an MLW ring would be a good thing. You know, use Daniel Bryan to not only strengthen the industry, but to build that following, you know, I would keep Daniel Bryan far away from Raw. I would put him on NXT for sure. For sure. Have Bryan on NXT. And then you know what you do? You bring Finn Balor back to SmackDown. I would, within the next month, here's what I would do. I would put Daniel Bryan on NXT, maybe heading towards the next takeover. When would you say the next takeover is? It hasn't been announced. It's May now. So say June. It'll be the end of May or beginning of June or something like that. There'll be another takeover. So within two or three weeks, Daniel Bryan shows up on NXT TV and we build towards, maybe it's maybe it's Kyle O'Reilly versus Daniel Bryan, Adam Cole versus Daniel Bryan. Maybe it's Johnny Gargano versus Daniel Bryan. You know, Johnny Gargano versus Daniel Bryan for the North American Championship. <laughs> I'm getting excited with myself now. In the meantime, after Survivor Series in your house, Great American Bash, WrestleMania backlash, Roman beats Cesaro, and he goes, I've beaten everybody. And then Finn Balor's music hits. And Finn Balor shows up on the SmackDown after SummerSlam Backlash. And he reminds Roman Reigns, I, 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 I've been Universal Champion before. Roman, I can't remember. Who was the guy that I beat to get the opportunity to fight for that title? Roman, who was the guy that I beat on my very first match on Monday Night Raw, Roman? What makes you think, just because you're on Friday, that that won't happen again? You're the head of the table? Oh, no, Roman. This is my table. And Finn Balor is here. I would start a rivalry between Finn Balor and Roman Reigns on SmackDown and have Daniel Bryan as your North American champion on NXT. In the meantime, Daniel Bryan can go and, you know, work smaller shows as well as the indies start to work up over the summer. And then I think you got a hot summer. If you spend the summer with Finn Balor and Roman Reigns, eventually leading to Roman Reigns and Brock at the end of the summer, and you got Daniel Bryan just going on the run of all runs in NXT and then starting to pop up on the indies, 
You may be on to something, folks. You may be on to something. But I'll tell you who's on to something. That is former WWE champion Drew McIntyre. He's got a new book out coming out tomorrow, Tuesday. If you're listening to this podcast the minute it drops. Uh, Drew McIntyre, a chosen destiny, my story. Drew is just a great dude. Got the chance to talk to him uh, about his uh, about his career, his whole story, you know, because that's what the book is about ultimately. But also, the stuff that I found really interesting, I got to pick his brain a little bit about not only WrestleMania and being in the first match instead of the main event, losing instead of winning, but also what that rain delay felt like for him. Keep in mind, this is a guy who's getting ready to go to the ring and finally have his WrestleMania match in front of people. And what happens? A 40-minute rain delay. I got to talk to him about that and a whole lot more. Here he is on the podcast this week. It's Drew McIntyre, folks. The Not Sam Wrestling Interview. It's a big time. The Scottish Warrior, the former WWE champion, the chosen one. He's got a book out now. Well, it technically comes out tomorrow. A Chosen Destiny by Drew McIntyre. And it's been too long, Drew McIntyre. Welcome. How are you, man? I'm fantastic. Good to chat to you again, buddy. And super weird that I yeah, have a book coming out. The first book I ever read cover to cover in my entire life. Like <laughs> Foley's Have a Nice Day. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I wasn't exactly young then. I was like 13, 14. Uh, so I probably should have read a bunch of English books that I did essays on. But, you know, the deal with English essays, you can read parts of the book and you, know, you could do an essay off of that easily. But it's so bizarre that so many years later, you know, I have my own book right now at 35 years old. So yeah, it's a lot of time right now, Sam. It's a lot of time. It's, I'm in the same boat as you as far as reading, I think. Like, I think that Mick Foley's first book was probably the first book that I actually read cover to cover because I wanted to read a book. And it was also the book that I would give, like, when I started dating, I would give to girlfriends who didn't understand wrestling. I'd go, here, read Mick Foley's book, and I don't want to talk to you about it until you understand it. Did that work? No, no, they never got it. They never, <laughs> never crossed my mind. <laughs> I never crossed my mind. <laughs> no, no, they never got it. They were like, I don't understand. Did the thumbtacks hurt? And I'm like, yeah, never mind. Never mind. This isn't, uh, this isn't going to work at all. Uh, but so was it your idea to come out with the book or did the WWE approach you and say like, you know, we've been telling your story and clearly this is something that resonates beyond wrestling. Uh, no, it certainly wasn't my idea. I thought it was completely insane. Uh, to be honest, when I got it brought to my attention, you know, would you uh, be willing to put your story on paper and bring out a book? And I basically said, you know, I'm still a younger guy and I've got a long way to go. And who wants to read about, you know, some kid from Scotland's wrestling story? I mean, well, it's not just that. It's more everything you've been through. If you're willing to talk about, you know, your real life, what you have been doing on a lot of interviews and on WWE television, and you've really overcome a lot. And we really think it could help people, especially during the difficult times with the COVID situation. And when it was put to me that way, I was like, absolutely. If it's going to help people, that's what I'm all about. I am on open book these days, especially with my fans. And if we're going to do it, let's not just write it for wrestling fans. Let's write it for everybody and kind of simplify it in certain areas so that everyone can read it and pick it up and hopefully get a little inspiration and know no matter how dark times may get, especially right now, there is always a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really interesting, like, because I've you've told the stories in a couple of the interviews you did. I know with the interview that you did with Austin on the network, but you talk about it in the book, too, about how when you first got to WWE and even when you first started training, like, you had this, I mean, I almost want to say entitlement about this idea that, yeah, even when Vince McMahon is introducing me as the chosen one, it's like, 
yeah, I'm nervous. And yeah, this is crazy. But also, of course, this is how it should go for me. Like, this only makes sense. And yeah, it feels like life had to force you into this level of humility that allowed you to be kind of the person that overcame all of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had to get a bit of a big reality check, that's for sure. You know, I've always been kind of fortunate throughout my wrestling career where, you know, I, I kind of helped start the modern day British wrestling scene, certainly the Scottish wrestling scene. It was always the kind of top guy there. And the top feud in Europe was myself and Seamus before we got signed and I came to America. I was the fastest developmental superstar to TV from OVW. I was on TV three weeks later on SmackDown. Then I went to FCW, Florida Championship Wrestling, was tag team champion there with Wade Barrett, was suddenly heavyweight champion there, was Dusty's kind of main guy and was always kind of used to being on top. And I was like, this is perfectly normal. I'm just the top guy wherever I go. And then all of a sudden, they're like, we're going to debut you on SmackDown. All these other guys are going to be part of the ECW initiative. But Drew, you're going to go to SmackDown. We have something in store for you. Didn't know it was going to be the Chosen One storyline until that night when I was backstage watching Vince cut the promo. And then I had to walk out and shake his hand and act like this is perfectly normal. But again, in my mind, it was like, okay, this is unbelievable. I recognize that, but this is just my storyline. You know, I've always kind of been in the top position. They're setting me up in a top position. This is just perfectly normal. <laughs> As I found out a little bit later, it was far from normal. And I did go through some hard times professionally, but especially personally that did affect my professional life. And I fell, fell hard. And that's where I got that reality check, where I got perspective. It's in the book, all the ups and downs. People have heard about many areas of it i go into great detail in the book but without that journey after the success initially and all the times i fell down i wouldn't be the wrestler i am today wouldn't be the businessman i am today and certainly just wouldn't be the man i am today because i was quite frankly a boy back then yeah and i mean you really present yourself now in a genuine way like as you started to become more of this character quote unquote that we see on tv i was like well this is the person that i've been interacting with backstage like this is it's 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 sort of come full circle and you're able to make a superstar out of who you are naturally and genuinely when you were first like when stuff first wasn't working out for you right when it's like boom you get everything your top guy your top guy your top guy and then it's like now you have to now it's going to be the crash every high comes with a low and since you've never felt any of these lows you're gonna have to feel them all at once did you at first, did you right away know, okay, this I have to change something, or did it take a while for you to not blame everybody else? Um, within the system? Yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely was blaming a lot of other people, and I wasn't looking at myself honestly. Um, as many difficult things as I was going through personally, like my mom being sick so far away in Scotland, which affected me dramatically. I wasn't looking honestly at myself saying, where can I improve? It was more of a was me attitude. I wasn't like, okay, you're not in as good a shape as a lot of people here. You're in good shape, but you can be in better shape. You know, you've got this accent. You're not so comfortable in the interviews. You're trying to remember everything word for word. And it's pretty clear to me, you can maybe work on articulating yourself better wasn't doing that just wasn't looking at myself honestly and then outside the ring that's when things kind of started coming unglued when it came to instead of the usual couple of beers after the show i wasn't burning the candle at both ends by that point the whole candle was just completely engulfed in flames with gasoline thrown in the top of it so yeah i just wasn't in a good place and uh, the truth is i never told the company where i was at mentally what i was going through and especially after like my mom passed 
that that was me just off the deep end. There was no saving me. At that point, I was out of control. They checked in on me and I just kept a kind of smile on my face. You'd want me to push forward. You'd want me to keep going, which you would. But I was in a very bad place and I needed to step away and I didn't step away. And if they knew they would have made me step away, they would have got me, you know, mental health. We have so many different programs within WWE to help. You're having some difficult times. And I just kept trying to push through. And it was absolutely necessary for me to get fired for one, for uh, to find myself like professionally, I had to step outside the bubble and realize, wow, you really let everything slip through your fingers. This was your dream. You'd have been happy to be the water boy when you first got signed and you were complaining about like not being in the top match every single night. In your mind, you believed you should have been the main event when you weren't putting in the work. Are you insane? And also, like, more importantly, I really had to find myself as a man because I was completely lost at the time. And it did require me stepping away from the company. And all that time outside the company, all the opportunities and platforms I was provided to start building my confidence and finding who I was going to be instead of playing all these characters I played that were parts of my personality were never the real me. And outside the companies, when I really started to relax and the more I was being myself, the more people started reacting to me for the first time I was getting these genuine reactions. And the more I let them in, the more I talked as Drew Galloway, the real person, the more they responded, I found, okay, I'm more relaxed. I'm in the moment. Like the Undertaker told me back in the day, stop playing the wrestler and be the wrestler. I'm finally being the wrestler. I'm being in the moment. I'm being present. Fans are responding. And it was that journey outside the company that helped get to where I'm at today, where you mentioned I'm so relaxed and being myself out there because I am. Mm-hmm. There are times as we, you know, you know about like things change up to the last second sometimes with the interviews on the show. And these days, it doesn't affect me at all. Back in the day, I would have a panic attack. I've seen actors from Hollywood or shows who had these scripts at the last second. How can you learn this? Let's go out there and just, Go with the floor, you'll be fine, buddy. But now I'm so confident to go out there and just kind of do it within the confines of the story because I am being myself just with the volume turned up and working within the storylines. So there's two things there that I think are super interesting. Like professionally, I think that losing perspective is something that a lot of people go through. Like when they get a taste of their dream, they forget that it was a dream to just get a taste and they start going like, well, why aren't I getting more? Why aren't I getting more? And you you completely lose this thing of like, dude, you're here, like, just enjoy this. But on a, on a personal level, I feel like when we're not, when we don't, when we don't get help or we don't deal with things properly, like when bad things happen to us, it becomes really almost comfortable in the most negative sense of the word to just kind of carry this like victim kind of hood, this like victim mentality. Like you said, like, woe is me. All this stuff is happening to me. And well, you know, how do you kick out of that on a personal level? Because you can't just, you can't do that for one scenario. You have to kind of shift your personality and not allow that to creep up on you again, right? Yeah. And I can, I mean, I talk about it in interviews. Sometimes I've said it on TV and I know a lot of superstars are in that position where they are frustrated. They feel like they're giving it all they can. And, um, they do feel a bit like the victim and I understand because I've been there and all I can say is just if you all you can control is you know your body working in the areas of your game that aren't your strongest point and eventually things are going to work out for you you just got to keep believing and don't lash out on social media because I don't think anyone's ever tweeted give me a push and suddenly the next week they got a big push so like I I understand looking around sometimes when people are frustrated because I've been there and I find myself there sometimes but I do have this unique perspective for the journey I've been on but in order to get there, I could never have done it alone. Like I mentioned in the book, I talk so much about 
my wife um, and how much she helped me grow up. Let's see. It's one thing that I was outside the company. The one thing I know is wrestling and I can go out there and I can wrestle and I can find myself as a wrestler. But the biggest thing of all of, I guess, getting through the issues I had and opening up as somebody that was so closed off, it was her. And I'm not just saying it because she's sitting in the background over here listening. <laughs> We're on location right now, but it is true. Without her persevering with me, I don't know how she dealt with me. I was was so closed off emotionally. I was difficult to deal with. And when I was fired, I was the busiest wrestler in the world. I was never home. Mm-hmm. And she believed in me. She believed in us. She stuck with me. And she finally started getting me to open up and start dealing with some of those emotions and start being more of a human being and stop focusing just on wrestling. I'm so obsessed with wrestling. She was never the biggest fan and she started helping me find balance in my life, which cleared things up for me, showing me there's other things outside of wrestling, started giving me perspective, not just on wrestling, but on life in general. And then eventually, you know, we had a big kind of moment that was significant to my career and my life where I broke my neck. I talk about in the book and I was home for the first time ever. In my life, I never had time off. I went straight from uni to WWE. WWE telling me where to go, where to be, fired, straight on the road, busiest wrestling on the road. Never had this eight weeks. We spent time together, and she was pretty upfront with me. She was like, Drew, you know, you're doing pretty well, but you're doing better. I was like, what do you mean? I'm like the top wrestler outside of WWE. I don't think I'd be doing any better. I was like, no, you're not giving it your all. You're like going out all the time, drinking all the time. It's affecting you. And then you're going to crash and burn, but it also is affecting us. And quite frankly, I'm going to leave your ass if you don't get your <laughs> crap to get, get yourself Yeah, together. oh, it could get a lot worse. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so she had a, we had a conversation with my family, and you know, we talked about cutting out the negative aspects of my life and you know the drinking and partying all the time and you know how I can improve myself. And it's one thing then asking, saying this can be good for you, but you got to be willing to do it yourself. And I was. It was never an addiction or anything. It was just a habit mm-hmm. I'd fallen into to deal with my issues. And I cut it out. And sure enough, after that eight weeks at home, my head cleared. I felt better than ever. My body started looking better than ever. I started eating better. And uh, I got to the point two months later where her and I were sitting like, what's the next step? Okay, I think maybe Japan's a place to go. Like I've talked to a couple of lads in independence at the time. And they were like, you want to come to New Japan? I was like, damn right, I do. I think that's the next logical step for Drew, my style. I think it's going to be really good. But before that, William Regal, who's uh, always been a mentor to me, told me we take a phone call with Triple H uh, before you make any decisions about your future. Sure enough, we uh, had that phone call. We spoke for about 40 minutes. He's been watching me the whole time. I'd seen how far I progressed as a wrestler. And he was very proud that what he saw in me, Vince saw in me, and everyone saw in me back in the day was materializing. But more than anything, how much I'd grown up and the man I'd become, he was so proud of. And he said, it's time to come home. And in my mind, the only place I was going to go was NXT. That was the most logical place with a fan base that knew what it was all about today. And I wanted to kind of work my way up. And I, one individual could make a difference back then in NXT. If you're experienced, you can help bring others up, guide them, teach them lessons. No good and bad that I've been through. This is obviously before being on the USA Network. So I really wanted to start there. That was Hunter's plan. And before I knew it, I was back in NXT um, all grown up. Yeah. I mean, you, you did a lot of growing up personally, but also like I witnessed professionally like you said, when you were fired between the WWE stints. And it's even hard to say, like, when you were fired, because like you said, you were as busy as you could ever be. It's not like you were some guy sitting on your couch waiting for a phone call. No. Like, you were <laughs> multi-continental, like, champion all over the place. You had to run in TNA and, and the UK indies. But, like, I saw you live uh, January 2016 at the PWG show in Reseda. And... 
what's always struck me about the stuff, and it, and it goes to what you were doing everywhere, but specifically for me in PWG, was that that crowd, and it's a super sort of smart, indie, small crowd, but they were as into you, if not more, than anybody else on that show. And I think that's because that when you left WWE, you stopped pretty quickly. You stopped wrestling like you were in WWE and you completely changed your style and you adapted to what kind of independent wrestling looked like. And you started moving super fast and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't TV wrestling as much anymore as much as much as it was the wrestling that you would see in Reseda. Was that something that you were immediately like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to change everything about me. Or is that something that you fell into as you started going? Um, it's interesting because honestly, um, the last few years I was with WWE, I was in 3MB, so I never watched wrestling. <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> uh, generally, it was Heath that was in there, and if I was in there, it was for one second, and then uh, we would quickly beat. So I do remember, um, you know, like when I was wrestling, I was always trying to be outside the box. When I watch his old SmackDown matches, I was the one guy trying to use the ring apron, trying to do the independent style, trying to be a little different. Sometimes I got in trouble for it because it wasn't the norm mm-hmm. at the time. But I wasn't wrestling for a long time towards the end of my run. And three weeks after I was gone from the company, I, I had my return to ICW in Scotland, put out my mission statement. My first match was in Evolve versus Chris Hero, Cashizono, for the Evolve title. And I remember after that match, like the response was so positive afterwards. I'm like, wow, look how much Drew's improved since WWE. He's really come on a lot. I am really happy for him. And I remember like looking at it and telling my wife, I was my girlfriend at the time, you know, I was there three weeks ago. I've always wrestled But I had an excellent opponent and a hero who was kind of like getting my confidence back up. And um, I did work with a lot of such talented individuals. Like that, during that time period, if you look at 2014 to 17, the wealth of talent and independence was oh. outrageous. And I was around all of them. And I remember watching that Evolve show. I was on last and just like get my eyes on the Ricochet, Roderick Strong, Johnny Gargano, the list goes on. And I'm on last. I was like, oh my God, the last match I had was 3MB. <laughs> so you can either see that and crumble or see that and go, right, I'm going to really have to step up my game here. And I knew eventually as I was traveling the world wrestling, these incredible talents that I was going to end up in PWG. That was a goal of mine. I was like, this is the who's who of independent wrestling. They don't have like big guys generally. Yeah. Like a Chris here would be the biggest guy or a Claudio. I would be the biggest guy they would have there. It's generally smaller, technical high flyers. And especially former WWE talents don't generally fit in there. So I knew if I'm going to crack, you know, the, the market that I want to crack, I want to get over everywhere. And I want to do it for the hardcore fans as well as, you know, the casual fans. I want to recreate what it is to be an independent superstar right now. And PWG was high in my list. And when I got that opportunity, I wrestled uh, Mike Bailey at PWG my first night. Mm-hmm. And I remember speaking to him, knew how good he was. Um, I built a relationship with Roderick Strong, who suggested putting him with me to Super Dragon. I'm so glad Roddy put in the word for that match. And then we had the match. It just kept escalating and escalating. I remember the fans were so incredible. I made a point because everyone's so friendly and fan interactive there. I remember watching everyone going out, talking to the fans, selling the shirts and stuff. And it's part of the deal. But I remember I told myself, I'm going to be the one that doesn't go out there. I want it to be like when Drew walks out there, like, oh, he's different. There's something different about this guy. He's the one that doesn't interact with everyone. He's this like lone wolf almost. And I'm going to go out there and I'm going to prove myself. And we had that match. He's Mike Bailey, unbelievable talent. I'm so glad he's able to get in America again. He's going to get a big chance soon, I'm sure. Such a talent. And we thankfully, you know, blew the roof off. We got the crowd going wild. And at the end, I was 
hoping for it. My fingers crossed. I was going to put in the work and it finally came. The police come back. If you get the police come back at PWG, like that's a big deal on that level. And that meant the absolute world to me. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you uh, you kind of orchestrated the way you wouldn't come out like that. Because honestly, like depending on your perspective as a fan there, I, I could see that people being like, oh, that's very WWE superstar-ish to like maintain your level and 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 not come out and like, you know, because in PWG they were selling, they were literally selling their shirts on the ring apron. You would go up to them during intermission and before the show and everything. So like to be the one guy not interacting with fans, that might almost leave the PWG fans in this position like, oh, we're going to see this ex-WWE guy now. And so when you go in there and turn it on, it's an even more kind of 180 where people are like, whoa, I was not expecting this. Yeah, that crossed my mind as well. Yeah. I was like, oh, God, they probably think, oh, Mr. WWE here. But at the same time, I was like, yeah, most of the guys who leave WWE initially, they're all about the money and they're out there like, buy my stuff, buy my stuff. That's true. I just like wanted to keep myself as this, you know, anomaly. Like, what's he all about? Like, what's his deal now? And then I will show you when I walk out there, you'll feel it by the way I walk out to the ring. You'll feel it how I wrestle in the matches and you'll know by the end of the match what Drew's all about these days. And it's certainly not 3MB. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How sold, do you think that WWE and Vince McMahon were completely sold on you coming back in a big way when you showed up in NXT? Or do you think that Triple H was sold on you and that your run in NXT was still that kind of last step of proving count? All right, let's see how he does in NXT to really, really see if this guy has has turned himself around. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I guess I'll never really know that for sure. Yeah. It was important for me to be there, and I was going to put in the work while I was there. I mean, I'm so proud of what I was able to achieve there. I wish I never tore my bicep off the bone that cut my run short. But I did maximize that time, you know, working with Shawn Michaels at the Performance Center. And inevitably, you know, when I returned to Raw and I started getting running, you know, Mr. McMahon did say to me one day, he heard everything, he hears everything, he sees everything, he knows what's going on, mm-hmm. however he words it, but... He knew that I wanted to go to NXT and that didn't impress him. I am that I was like, you know, I want to start here. I'm going to prove myself. This is my audience right now. And eventually I'll come over here. Then I'll restart again and I'll educate myself to that WWE Raw, WWE SmackDown audience, wherever I happen to land. And I know he was impressed just with that mindset. He could see how I was thinking now, like more as a businessman, looking things logically that just want to be on Raw and just jump in at the deep end and try and get over. No, that's not what makes sense. These are the audience, the core audience that know what I'm all about now. And I can really make a difference here as a leader, like I've been doing across the world. And that's what I want to do. And that's what I'm going to do. Or quite frankly, I wouldn't have shown up. Yeah. Yeah. And to leave WWE with these delusions of grandeur and then to come back and be like, I'm here to be on Raw and be the champion again. It's like, all right, Drew, has, are you, this is the same thing no, we were dealing with before. That's what I'm like, is- like 52 weeks a year, every single week is nonstop. I understand that. Unlike the first time where I was like, I want it all now. Why am I not the champion now? And people trying to explain to me, Drew. 52 weeks of television a year. It's nonstop. You can take your time. And that's what I was all about. I loved returning with Dolph and just, okay, we're going to slowly start educating them who Drew is and what he's all about. And if it takes a few years, that's fine. I want them to know who I am inside and out. But it did take a minute to kind of start letting that real personality out from big, angry, hairy Scotsman. And that was my <laughs> whole personality <laughs> for a couple of years. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. What was your favorite of your NXT matches? Oh, I had a few. Um, obviously, winning the title with Bobby Roode. It's the first time I ever wrestled Roode. I missed them in TNA. Um, just, we almost did a match a couple of times. He's awesome. Yeah. 
Uh, I love the match with Andrade, even though my bicep decided to pop off at the end, or I'd still be NXT champion, of course. <laughs> um, I an awesome match with Cole as well. This was on a live event, and I believe we showed it as part of a Christmas special or something, or New Year's special. Myself and Adam Cole with Shawn Michaels as the referee. And I'll never forget the graphic before Shawn cut his hair. And myself and Cole with Shawn in the middle with the long hair. It looked like a dad referee and his two sons having <laughs> a fight with a big brother and little brother. So, yeah, there's a lot of good matches, a lot of fun times, especially the live events. The crowds were so cool in the live events. And I got to, you know, be on last. And as I say, like from the time in Independence, the same as NXT, every match is trying to outdo each other. Everyone's putting in the efforts like every match is a wrestlemania main event i gotta follow that at the end so i'm working myself in the main event and then i get time with the crowd and talking the mic and drive everyone crazy because they're sitting on the bus like who's out there talking <laughs> with the fans again and taking pictures and he's gonna shower and he's gonna make his tours late but i can help myself like i just love interacting with the fans that became part of my thing in the independence like you know, I understand they're who make us and who've made me, and I'm going to give them all the time it takes, even if it holds up the bus for 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that was also such a special time for NXT, right? Like, you know, with all the live events, and I think people forget that energy because, you know, because of what we've been through for the last year and a half. Nobody's had live events, but, like, NXT running, I mean, that's why all those takeovers, one of the big reasons, you know, the matches were incredible, but one of the reasons why those takeovers were all so special and those live events were so special is because, like, NXT fans showed up to every show kind of expecting a WrestleMania level performance. And we as fans are going to give you WrestleMania level reactions when you deliver. So it's just like this yep. energy that existed within NXT that I think, I mean, I think that that's what brought them to where they are now. That's what made it so that now it's on the USA network and the takeovers are a completely independent function of pay-per-view weekends and everything. It's just that, that sort of, symbiotic relationship that the audience and the superstars had because you guys going out there and wanting to perform at this complete highest level possible every single time and fans going like, all right, if you give us that, we'll give you everything that we have. 100%. And it was the same. It was interesting coming from the independents, especially in the UK and how the fans were such part of the show and NXT was exactly the same Yeah, and deserved their own, like the fans deserved their own roster spot. <laughs> was such a significant part of the show. Yeah. Now, and the bicep tour, uh, tear, I would say the the positive of that was that it did give you that buffer between NXT and the main roster, right? So it's like when you got to the main roster, it wasn't like NXT superstar Drew McIntyre is now on the main roster. It was, oh, we haven't seen this guy in a while, and here he is. And I think that kind of made it a little bit easier to transition into, as you said, the very mean, scary, hairy Scotsman that was running around shouting at people. Um, but, you know, I, I think that for a long time, like for well over a year, kind of the conversation happening among wrestling fans is why isn't Drew in the title picture? And like part of me always thought it was smart that like you weren't getting a bunch of title matches because if you're not going to win the title, I don't want to see you lose. So let's just keep you out of that conversation altogether. But at the same time, it was like, well, when is this going to happen? You know, before 2020, there was a year or two where wrestling fans were really going, when is this going to happen? Did you feel that or did you have the patience to wait it out? Uh, I felt it from the fans, which was cool. Yeah. But like I mentioned earlier, I was at a different place mentally. I was like, as long as it takes the better, but the more they want it, the better because I understand now 
um, that it is 52 weeks. We got to get to a point where they know me inside and out. And the thing about that period was I could go for it, but I, I just, I'm not quite where I need to be. And I knew that I knew there was some pieces missing from the jigsaw puzzle. I know I didn't quite have that connection with the fans that I needed, even as a heel, I was just big, angry, bad guy. I didn't quite have the defined character at the time. And I didn't quite know who I was 100% as comfortable as I was at the time. I knew there was something missing. And I thought, and I remember consciously see, like seeing it on Twitter, feeling it from the crowd and getting told in person by fans, why aren't you in here? And I'm okay. They're feeling it. That's cool. But I know it's not time yet. And when it's time, like I'll know as well. And it did take until basically 2020 until I started feeling like, okay, the final pieces are falling into place. Now's the time. Hey, we're going to go for the title. Now I feel like I'm in the spot where the connection's been made. I know who I am inside and out because it's just me finally. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that 2020 Royal Rumble was, I mean, magical. It was like one, it's top five Royal Rumbles. It's, 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 it's an amazing match. But for you, knowing that this is your time, right? This is the moment. Not everybody, like sometimes people just evolve into the spot. But for you, I feel like 2020 Royal Rumble is the moment where it's like, all parts are coming together and it's the official coronation. Drew is going to be the guy. For you going in, I feel like there are a couple of things at play there. Number one, you know, you know, as an observer of the business, it's not always the best thing in the world when WWE decides to make it public who their guy is going to be. John Cena had trouble keeping the fans on board with him. Roman Reigns had even more trouble keeping the fans on board with him. So, you know, for you to be... On that chain, it's like, yeah, of course you want to be the next John Cena. Of course you want to be the next Roman Reigns. But at the same time, how do I make it so that that history doesn't repeat itself? And on a smaller level, Edge is coming back, right? Edge is coming oh, yeah. back. And that to me, like, you know, this other big picture stuff, like you could worry about it, you could not worry about it. But I feel like for you to be in your position in the Rumble and Edge is coming back, like you know how excited people are going to be to see him. You've just got to hope that they're okay with you also winning, right? Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot going on at that, at that time for sure. Where do we begin? And I guess leading up to the rumble, I remember that's kind of when the crowd started, you know, responding positively. Yeah. Um, I, I remember I got the chance on the mic just to kind of Drew go out there and just kind of do what you feel. And as I started having polls with the fans, being very interactive with them, I'm still technically a bad guy and getting cheered, killed per Rowan Spider. Uh, during that time period, I remember there was one particular match at Madison Square Garden. I was dressed in No Way Jose, and he came out first. That his shtick was no good reaction, babyface reaction. And then I came out, and I, I've never heard a reaction like my career at that point. And I got in the ring, and No Way looked at me and said, "Stone Cold." I was like, "I have no idea what's going on. This is so bizarre." <laughs> and it was leading leading right up to Rumble, and then like I was at that show. Into, yeah, I was just blown away, and I was yeah. supposed to be the bad guy. Back, and I played with the fans, had fun with the fans. It's the guard and give them what they want. Just yeah. be a bad guy, because uh, you're supposed to. Like, just I went, I went, lent into it, had fun with them, and that was a really fun match. And it really told me, wow, I think we're onto something here. Just you know, with connection wise, and um, you know, getting to where I need to be. And it, I guess when it comes to the relatability thing, for me and like the fans being told this is kind of the guy right now. I think the key for me is just go through a bunch of hell and <laughs> talk about it. And the fans know you've been through some crap, had to overcome some crap, even as a six foot five, 270 pound guy, like they know this guy never gave up on his dreams. He's fighting for his dreams. And I can, I can relate to that, but the rumble itself, finding out one, 
taking out Brock Lesnar yeah. and the structure of the match. You know, he's going to be this absolute beast and I'm going to be the, the one that takes the beast down was unbelievable. But to actually be winning it on top of that. And then you find out, and Edge is coming out towards the end as well. I'm like, oh. And, and, yeah. and by the way, <laughs> like while people were happy to see Brock go down, there was no guarantee that they were going to be happy to see you take him down. Like, you know, they were mad that oh. he had beaten Kofi. They were mad that, like, they wanted Ray to beat, like, you know, you could have sat there and gone, like, oh, they're booing me because they wanted Kofi to eliminate him. You know, weird things happen, right? Oh, yeah. You just never know. In my mind, I was just, I was so confident in that moment. I talk about it in the book. Like, I, I compare it to Stars Born, like that <laughs> moment when the movie where yep. she's off the stage and Bradley Cooper's singing her song. And she has that moment where she's just, like, thinking it's now or never get the hell on there. And she storms the stage. I remember being backstage and, watching it unfold with Brock and I describe it in detail in the book and I finally fire myself up to the point like I'm gonna out there and I'm gonna take his ass out if he changes his mind out there I'll throw him out like I was just in the mindset <laughs> of I can beat up Brock Lesnar and I marched to that ring I got in the ring I called him a bitch to his face like he took the gloves off <laughs> I remember just being in that moment so convinced I am gonna destroy you obviously a little assistant ricochet there put him out and that response was just the biggest thing I'd ever heard in my entire career by far 40,000 people cheering, losing their minds. And from then on, I was just amped, like unbelievably. And it never crossed my mind. Like no negative thought crossed my mind until it was time for Edge. I was in the corner with AJ Styles. I made sure he was choking me and I had a clear view of the entranceway because I wanted to see my friend come back after nine years. And yeah. I wanted to be in the moment with the fans. So I put myself in a position where I could see the entranceway <laughs> with AJ's foot in my throat. <laughs> and uh, I heard the reaction. I went, oh, I'm so happy for him. Plays Adam, but a guy. Wait a minute. <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> Holy, turn on me. We've seen this happen before. That suddenly crossed my mind at that exact moment when he made his entrance. And uh, we got towards the end and um, you know, it was Roman and Edge. And thankfully, you know, Roman did me a solid by the one that being the one that took out Edge towards the end. I heard the boos and I said, screw this. Let's just keep powering through. And Roman and I got into it together. And you know, he'd been my main feud at that point. You know, big matches over the past couple of years. The you know, huge match rest me at 35 when he returned from the leukemia. Never had got the one up on him and finally hit that Claymore, put him out. And again, the response was equal to that Brock elimination. I couldn't believe it. I, I dropped to my knees. I was so overcome with emotion. And I could see Edge and uh, Roman watching from the outside of the barricade. I could see they were both, you know, so happy for me as well, which was pretty emotional. And yeah, that, that could have could have been bad, let's say, but it went well. Thank it God. went perfectly. <laughs> I mean, it was perfect because like everything, it was just, it was all done so well in terms of storytelling, right? Because like the beauty of Brock, and I think the biggest benefit to him being the one to beat the streak is that there is no match that Brock Lesnar has where you know he's going to lose, right? Any yeah. match that he's in, there's at least a 50% chance that he's going to win. So, I mean, I remember being there and, like, going out into the crowd for the match and the vibe, like, people really were like, oh, my God, they're going to have Brock win. Oh, my God, Brock's just going to eliminate everybody. Like, this, it was a real, real, it wasn't, like, it was a very real possibility that Brock was going to come in at number one, eliminate 29 guys and just win. And people are going to be like, what? And so you come in and then when it was down to you and Roman, it was almost like, oh, but they're never, they're never going to have the new baby face eliminate Roman. That'll never, oh my God, they actually did it. And like, yeah, it, it was just so, it was such a cool moment for you. If you could have one moment, in that match is it the end of the match or is it the brock elimination 
that's a difficult one because they're both so significant. They really are. Uh, yeah, I mean, like winning the match is incredible, but without the Brock elimination and getting to, you know, set Brock and I up the way it did, you know, do, do I end up in the position I'm in right now without Brock Lesnar and part of the story is the story he told in the rumble and at the elimination uh, Drew McIntyre is not in the position he's in today so it's so hard to pick between either of them so I'm going to say both since they happened <laughs> good. Back time. <laughs> good. yeah good for you and also yeah I mean talk about the story the fact that the Claymore took Brock out for literally minutes they were just laying yeah, on the ground uh, that, for that minutes that was unreal I didn't yeah. know that was going to happen like just you go with what you're given out there you learn is you know, the more experienced you get and the more present you are in the match and not nervous and just trying to just run around and like in the past if he'd lay there that whole time maybe i'd have left and i'd been staring for the next guy to come down but he presented me with an opportunity yeah. and i stood over brought lesnar's prone body and as long as he was going to be there i was going to be standing over him and yeah he made true mcintyre as simple as that yeah yeah that was awesome so then we go to wrestlemania and i mean you talk about that's how the book kind of concludes is the that's where it goes it goes up until pretty much wrestlemania and that build and i mean it really I think ultimately it's such an interesting time capsule because you talked about how like, you know, you did a good job of capturing how when COVID was first starting, we were all kind of trying to get a handle on it. And I remember that I was sitting there in the January and February, as you started to hear about it, it was almost like, oh yeah, this is like when the bird flu was out or encephalitis or just like the kind of whatever, you know, sickness of the moment that you hear about on the news, but we, you know, go about our normal life. But I remember as like, countries started to get really affected by it and you're like oh is this a little more serious and then the nba shuts down and celebrities start to get it. and you're like oh this is this is really happening and and i felt the same way that you described feeling in the book which is well i mean it's wrestlemania of course it's going to happen in a stadium full of fans that's i mean that's how wrestlemania <laughs> works um how do you wrap your head around because there, I, there's just got to be so many emotions number one now you've got to pull off having this huge culminating moment match with Brock Lesnar in a warehouse with no people in it. And at the same time, you're like, okay, I have to figure out how to do this because it's my job. It's my career. But on a personal level, there had to be disappointment. Like there had to be this like, are you kidding me? I put in all this work and I don't even get to have my moment in front of fans. Yeah, I mean, uh, I keep detailing the book. I've spoke about it a lot. That I went through every range of emotion you can possibly imagine. Um, I was in the UK for uh, a press tour, and I was filming the BT Sport commercial where I was in Scotland, the Highlands uh, that we released. And I remember when I was in Scotland, they con WWE contacted me like two in the morning, saying we're pulling you out. And um, you know this situation situation is getting pretty serious. So I woke everyone up, made sure we were able to film that commercial before I was pulled out of Scotland. So close to my family. The last time I was close to my family was like a year and a half ago. They were within touching distance. I never got to see them. And I'm coming back home and I'm thinking, you know, like I talk about in the book, um, you know, this sucks, but many will still go ahead. I really hope my family can come though. Yeah, yeah, they'll be able to come. And but I'm really angry of getting pulled out. And then I start watching the news and start seeing the kind of gravity of the situation. And as you say, all the sports are shutting down and then there's a possibility mania is not going to happen. I went, there's no way. Come on. That'd just be my luck. Bad luck, Drew. It's like <laughs> all these ups and downs in my career. Drew finally gets a world title match at WrestleMania against Brock Lesnar. Something I've actually envisioned for years. And then suddenly it's going to be like, it's not going to happen. There's going to be nobody there. That's never going to happen until it happens. And, <laughs> 
when it was it happened initially, I was so angry, I was upset. Uh, was me again, kind of a little bit of an attitude until I really started focusing on what was happening to the world and people were dying and every other sport was shut down. Every other entertainment was shut down and we as a company decided to push ahead and give them WrestleMania. And then I felt like a bit of an ass. I was like, wow, truth. Like, come on. <laughs> I know this is how you've dreamt of it, but nobody could have predicted this. We're going ahead. You have this feel-good story. People are behind it. You're the last match of the second day. We talk about the smiles and faces. That's a real thing. And it was really important during that time to make people happy. We decided to give them many over two days, an entire weekend escape. And I could be the happy ending for that whole weekend. It changed my whole perspective. And obviously it would have been nice to have a crowd there. 80,000 going wild. My family going wild. My wife in the front row going nuts. Having that moment, jumping in the crowd with a title and kicking out of F5 after F5, everyone losing their damn mind. Would have been lovely. But, <laughs> you know, we had the match. It was in the performance center. Brock treated it just like a fight. I could tell by his eyes when he walked to the ring. He's in this. I was in it. You know, he a lot, I mean, I kicked out a bunch of F5s. Yeah. <laughs> Drew McIntyre, he beat Brock Lesnar in less than five minutes. It's not going to be talked about as one of those technical masterpieces of all time, but it cemented me as a top, top guy. Drew McIntyre is the man that took down Brock Lesnar in less than five minutes, kicked out multiple F5s and won during a time and with a feel-good story during a time where we needed some smiles. And I had my little moment with the camera where I thanked everybody that we thankfully kept in the show, uh, which I thought was going to be edited out. I just did it in the moment, just thanking everyone for supporting me. No longer Vince's chosen one, the fans' chosen one, which meant so much more to me. Um, and they're choosing WWE during these difficult times. And then I watched it with my wife at home with popcorn, which was bizarre. She presented me the title in real life <laughs> when I was officially the champion, which was so cool because, of course, being the way I am now after wrestling for 20 years, I assume anything can change, even if it's been pre-recorded. So I had these totally. visions, of, like I described in the book, of hitting Brock hitting one of the F5s and then one, two, it cuts to a clip of Seth or Roman, someone else with a long black hair, getting pinned three, Brock's title with a crowd So I wasn't sure until something's official, it's not official. And then when it was official, that was really cool. It was a cool moment. Then I heard the feedback and the numbers were just astronomical. The 14 yeah. million unique social media interactions over two days, up 60% the year prior so much positivity and people were so grateful we put wrestlemania on so i was very happy for it grateful for it and you know this year we had fans uh, there again it was cool to to open mania and get to experience that again and i'm still chasing my moment sam yeah yeah well okay yeah because we could talk about the last whole year of like you know the fact that you were you know the 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 number one guy on this show in unprecedented times but i really want to talk to you firstly wrestlemania Night one, Drew and Bobby's opening. Mr. McMahon, thanks everybody. National anthem. Boom, weather delay. Are you sitting there going like, no, 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 no. We're not doing this again. Yeah, there is no way that we are doing this again. Yeah, it was pretty unbelievable. I just whole day in general, just like, okay, we're doing this, this is great, and then seeing the weather happen, and then I remember it was a particular moment, I was walking past the arena, and the fans had to get evacuated, and I'm looking out, and it's pouring down, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me, this is the story <laughs> of my life, someone stick a mic in my face, and they were like, how do you feel? I was like, I feel this is something to do with me fighting for the title, last year I was fighting for the title with a worldwide pandemic, this year we're going to get rained out, and I saw Vlad, the super fan, there. Yeah. he kind of took my attention off things for a second, I will chat with Vlad, and then I was like, all right, things are going to be fine. They're going to go ahead. Just stay in the zone, stay in the zone. <clears throat> and then eventually we go on stage. Obviously, I was supposed to be at the front of the stage. 
and uh, someone had kind of taken my spot and I was like perfect because I was trying not to look at the crowd I didn't want to get that proper feeling from the crowd I didn't want to appreciate it until my entrance which I knew was first so I kind of blended into the background the best I could I kept my head down as much as I could I didn't want to look up and just take it all in yeah so I was out there we did the intro as soon as they I knew we were clear we're in the opening video I was the first one in the back I left right away and so everyone's passing me and it's I'm hearing we may have to get delayed. So the rage is starting to come over me. And but everyone's passing me from the stage. I was getting big man starters up. You got this, you burnt this, fist bumps and high fives. But I'm just getting rage in my face as I'm raising my fist slowly to everybody as they're walking past. Because they don't know we're about to get delayed. I yeah. do. And then it's like well, Bobby doesn't know either. So I'm the only one that's aware we're about to be delayed. And, and so finally everybody's you know passed and I ask, you know, what the F is going on or something to that effect. Sure. And sure enough, we've got this delay. And uh, we've got the most like amazing, amazing like staff in general from top to bottom, especially in our production. And like they're instantly just okay. What do we do? Start getting plans together to buy time live on WrestleMania. And someone <laughs> ran and grabbed me and said, "Drew, we need you right now." I was like, "Where are we going?" <laughs> so I was walking with. I'm not really sure what's going on. And then I see like Lashley and MVP talking. They're like, "Just go crash that." No, no, okay, okay. <laughs> into the shot. And like, I never even crossed my mind that we're live on WrestleMania right now. I just got in there. I was so in the moment. I know Lashley was so in the moment. Pre-workouts flying, adrenaline's flying. <laughs> and we get up there and we get into that, that promo. And I like, uh, like I've watched that back, that 40 minutes, wherever it was. And, yeah. and I really enjoyed just how real it felt because it was real. And I think we could do with a little more of that on the show, just going with what feels right. And speaking from the heart. And obviously, you've got to control yourself sometimes. I really had to watch my swearing. I was very conscious of that. That's the only thing I was conscious of. But, you know, I really enjoyed that part. And then I was pacing like a maniac until it was time to do your entrances now. And that's when I finally walked out and looked up properly for the first time. And, yeah, I would be lying if I said I wasn't close to tears during that entrance. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would only have to imagine. I agree with you totally about that first 40 minutes. It was pretty amazing to watch what happened, especially knowing that you and you and Bobby especially, because you and Bobby are in this emotional place where you're ready to go out to the ring. So when you take that place and you pour it into a promo, like you're going to get some good stuff. Um, yeah. Not swearing was the hardest <laughs> thing I did during that. Like I remember like per Sarah was panicking in the interview and she was just like, I mean, she did a great job, such a professional, but sure. like all of a sudden the spot, uh, people are a bit worried. I was not worried whatsoever. I was just like, she was like, okay, so Drew and I instantly went, turn this way. He's not attacking me from behind. Carry on. Just, like, that was real. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was very funny. You were just like, I got to get you over right, here. Just go with it. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah, so was interesting. But yeah, like I say, I think, you know, we used to do it back in the day. We used to promo class with Vince. And sometimes he would do stuff on the show. And he changed the finish sometimes on the show. And yeah. just to see where people were at and how they would react to things. And I think it'd be pretty cool if he brought that back. So are you still in a position? Because one might say, well, you've accomplished your goals. But you're right, Drew. You are still chasing your WrestleMania moment. Like, yes. just when you think. And I swear to God, had the rise of Bobby Lashley. And, like, Bobby Lashley had this incredible, you know, two months. Not that he's not always incredible, but the two months for him leading to WrestleMania, it was just like, whoa. There was just something about it. Like, as soon as the title was put on Bobby Lashley, it's like, you know, independent from Drew, this is this is an amazing version of Bobby Lashley we're seeing. So when Bobby walks out of WrestleMania and he's still champion and you go down to the hurt lock, I mean, that was certainly not the, you got your WrestleMania moment in the beginning of the match. That was clearly not the WrestleMania moment you were looking for at the end of the match. Are you still, is that still 
this thing that's in your head now where you're like, okay, I still have to fight to get that standing tall WrestleMania moment. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. That, I want that moment with the fans. That's going to be part of Drew's story. And, you know, a lot of people said, like, said to me, oh, my goodness, Drew, I can't believe you never won. And, but you deserve this. And, like, that moment with the fans and whatever. I, I, like, when I was lying there after the match and I, I heard the crowd and the shock almost. Yeah. Actually standing there. I thought to myself, wow, we've made another superstar. This is great. Over the past couple of months, we need top level superstars really bad. And as many as we can make, like, let's keep making. Like, and Bobby is now an elite top level star that he's always been destined to be, him and MVP together, or Magic. And for Drew McIntyre, the character, like, I mean, I've been on top, like, thankfully, I've been lucky to get this platform, these opportunities for a long time. But my character, I'm not Superman. You know, I'm not like, like Cena, I guess, was known as like Super Cena. I, I don't, I'm not made of metal. I'm not from another planet. I don't overcome everything. People know my story. I'm flawed. I am the Batman. And I think that's what makes me more relatable. And sometimes I'm going to fall and fall hard generally. And that includes falling at WrestleMania. And it's how do I deal with it? I yeah. guess is like more of what's interesting for my character and to stay relatable as such a big guy. And at the same time, making someone like Lashley, I think is very important. And I, yeah, I think that's such a good point too. Cause part of me was like, Oh, Drew, no, you don't. Oh, like, you know, feeling sorry. But then this other part of me watching it was like, well, they just made as if he needed, but I mean, Bobby Lashley has just been made forever. Like this, like that, the fact that, and you know, it's only in this conversation that I'm realizing the same way, Lesnar laying, you know, passed out unconscious from that Claymore kick turned Drew McIntyre up to the next level. I think, Drew, you going down to the hurt lock made Bobby Lashley and brought him to that next level. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. We're just supposed to be pulling each other up, you know, getting those characters as high as they can get to. And if we can create as many elite level superstars as possible. It's going to be very good for our future. And maybe you won't get the WrestleMania moment, but you might get the WrestleMania backlash moment. And that could be, that could be. I'm going to get that many moment. That's all part of the story. Just wait five years from now, but I finally have my moment at WrestleMania when I'm 40. I can't wait. I can't wait. Well, you've got the triple threat championship match coming up at backlash with Braun and Bobby Lashley. Uh, but tomorrow, tomorrow, a chosen destiny Drew McIntyre, the book is out. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, it's just a great story. It's one of those great, relatable stories. And uh, your journey is a pretty incredible one so far. And to me, it's even more incredible that clearly we got a lot more, uh, we got a lot more ground to walk on, don't we? Plenty more ground, plenty more ground. Yeah. Book two will be out soon enough. <laughs> 10 more years. Seamus is about 25 years older than me. We take it to his age and I get my second book out. <laughs> oh, I love it. Thank you very much for your time, Drew McIntyre. You're the man. Thank you, Sam. Always appreciate you. Thanks for listening. Follow at NotSam on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Rate, review, and subscribe. This has been Not Sam Wrestling. Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer. Blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, your new favorite part of the day. 
Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York.